Well, good morning. It is great to be back with you after being on sabbatical for the last month. Oh, thanks. You don't need to clap, but come on. No, I'm just kidding. No, no, thank you. I appreciate that. It's great to be back with you. Man, the saying is true. It's always fun to leave, but it is great to come home, isn't it? That's how I feel. Um, Hey, didn't Mario and Taylor do a great job the two Sundays they preached? Let's give them a hand for sure. And uh, did you appreciate having Kent Williams and Greg Hafer here the two weeks that they, they, uh, they preach as well? Uh, Kent and Greg are dear friends of mine. I was so glad to share um, this pulpit with them. And I appreciate all of you allowing me and my family the time to, to go away for a month and, and really just recharge the batteries. And we certainly did that. We also did some traveling. In the last month, we have been through 17 different states, including Washington, D.C. and Canada. We did over 3,000 miles. And you know what all that traveling showed me? Showed me just how much I love Northwest Arkansas. You know, so anyway, I'm glad to be back. And for me personally, one of the highlights of, of the sabbatical was going to Washington, D.C. and visiting the Museum of the Bible. Have you heard of this place? It's a brand new museum. It's considered one of the more technologically advanced museums in the world, and it was absolutely fascinating. Um, I only gave myself two hours to walk through this, and I really need about 12 hours to get through the six-story museum. And um, I, I'm going to go back one day, and I'm going to just block out the whole day. I'm going to take a sandwich with me, and I'm going to spend about three hours per floor. It was absolutely fascinating. And um, I wish that I could stand up here and I, I could tell you, uh, I wish I had about an hour to just tell you about all the neat things that I saw. I would love to tell you about the Gutenberg Press and, and all the stuff they talked about that. I would love to tell you about um, the Bible that had Martin Luther's signature in it that he signed himself. And if you don't know who Martin Luther is, uh, Google him and you'll learn a lot. It's, he is a major player in the church, but it's from, from the 1500s. They had fragments of the Dead Sea Scrolls in the Museum of the Bible. Um, I would like to tell you about uh, one of the oldest King James Version's Bibles in existence today. It's this picture behind me. Um, this Bible was printed in 1611, which is the very year that the King James Bible was released. So that's a picture of one of the oldest King James Version Bibles in existence today. I'd love to tell you about all of that stuff, but we'll just have to save that for another time. But the Bible is absolutely life-changing, and I hope that you would agree with that. That the Bible is the very words of God, and, and I have never doubted it, but I'll tell you, after visiting the Museum of the Bible, it only confirmed it in me even stronger that what we have in our hands today, uh, what has been preserved and what has been passed down to each of us has been done so correctly. And what we have in our hands today is exactly what God wanted us to have. And what you have at your fingertips is precious. And don't let anyone anywhere tell you anything different than that the Bible is true and it is the words of God. And that is why it saddens me today when I hear of Christians or I even hear of churches or even whole denominations for that matter drift away from God's word. They drift apart from its foundations. They do so by intentionally stepping off the foundations of God's word. And I wonder why do they do that? Well, why do we sometimes say, ah, I'm not going to believe this anymore? Or why do some churches seem to practice something that's not reflected in Scripture? 
Well, you know, there's a few reasons for that. There's a few reasons for why Christians and churches will step off the foundations of God's Word. They do it because, you know, if you're going to stand on God's Word, you will meet some resistance for that. But when you step off of God's Word, it seems like the resistance just seems to go away. You know why else uh, some churches step off the foundations of God's Word? It's because when you step off of God's Word, you step off the foundations laid there, it is so much easier to scratch the itch of the ears of what people want to hear. And it comes without resistance. There's a lot of people that want to feel like that they're standing in a right relationship with God, but also practicing whatever they want to do. And that's why we step off of God's word. So, God, I want to feel good about what I'm doing, but I also want to commit adultery. And I also want to, to be uh, full of greed and arrogance. And, and I want to pursue my addictions and all of those things. But I want somebody to tell me that what I'm doing is okay, that God's okay with this lifestyle. The only way you're going to get that is if you step off of God's word. You see, we live in a world today, and I, and I think you would probably agree with me. I think many of you would. Maybe you haven't articulated it the same way that I'm going to for you. But we live in a world that has two systems at play. And these two systems are competing with each other. And the very first system is just, we'll just call it God's system. God's system. This is where Christians would find themselves. This is the system that's, that is explained very clearly in God's Word. And there are benchmark words that we would associate with God's system like righteousness and holiness and faithfulness and grace and forgiveness and, and all of those kinds of words. This is where Christians are. This is where many of us today who've accepted Christ in our heart say that we're a part of God's system. God's system is in competition with another system. And, and just for, there's no other word to call it, we'll just call it a worldly system. There's some benchmark words of the worldly system. One of those words or phrases would be hedonism. You know what hedonism is? That's making the pleasure of self your highest priority. That describes a worldly system. You, you might find greed and arrogance and sin. and all. It doesn't mean that, that Christians don't wrestle with those things, but, but there's a glorification of those things over here in, in a worldly system. Obviously, this is opposite of the church. There are clear differences between these two systems. That's why I say they're in competition with one another, competing systems. This is the system that Jesus said, I came to seek and to save the lost. It was this system that the Lord was talking about. When he said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. That's who Jesus was talking about. And for centuries, Christians have been trying to figure out ways to pull and to rescue people from this worldly system into a new life in Jesus Christ. It's the very foundational purpose of the church. This is the system right here that Jesus said to his disciples, I want you to go to and make disciples out of the world, this thinking, and I want you to teach them and I want you to baptize them and show them what it means to be a part of my family over here. Since the earliest days of the church, it's been their mission to seek and save out of this worldly system. The lines between these two competing systems have always been more or less very clear. We understood what God wanted and we understood what fell outside of God's vision for people. It was not hard to differentiate between the two. 
But can I share with you what my opinion is about today's world? I believe that one of the greatest challenges facing the church today is this. That the lines between the two systems are not as clear as they once were. I believe that right there is probably the greatest challenge we're facing today. Is that the lines between, the differences between, just aren't as clear as they used to be. What used to be black and white is now gray. What used to be clear is now fuzzy. What used to be clarified is now blurry, and what used to be clear is now confused. Maybe I can demonstrate it or illustrate it for you this way. I'm going to show you two pictures. We all know what this is. This is just a picture of a church, okay? I'm going to hold up here. Hopefully you guys can all see this. This is the church, and this, we're going to let this picture represent the godly system, okay? This is where Christians are. This is, represents, I think, many of us in this room today. Now, I want to show you another picture, and I don't mean anything against anybody that you're going to see in this picture. I've just, I grabbed off the internet just a cover, just a random one of OK Magazine, and, and I, I, I couldn't tell you who everybody is. I know that's a Kardashian, and, 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 and I'd have to think about the rest. But anyway, um, I'd figure it out. And I'm not, nothing personal against any of these people, so don't hear that. But when I walk through the grocery store and I see all these kind of magazines, I'm, I'm like, Flip through the pages of those, and you're going to pretty much see what's important to the worldly system. That's what's contained inside of these. And so don't, don't think of people. Just think of a system here. So this picture represents a worldly system, the cravings of the flesh, and all of those things. This picture represents godly, a godly system. Now, here's how I kind of see things. I think if you were to go back 100 years, okay, maybe not even that far, 50 years, Go back, to when, go, go back to when your grandparents were your age, okay? And, and, and I think you'd have the church here, and then you'd have the world, and, and they weren't that far apart. I mean, there were clear differences between the two, but at least in the world, you go back 50, 60, 70 years, there was, uh, there was a moral code, if you will. There was clear right and wrong. None of that was, was you, know, uh, you know, out of bounds in talking about. You know, there were things that, yeah, of course that's wrong, and the church and the world were kind of close together. You know, Christians might say, well, yeah, you know, um, you know we, we try to represent this and we're not this. But there was kind of an understanding. There was, there was, people understood what purity was. They understood what righteousness was. There was right and wrong. Those are the, here's what's happened, I think. I don't think anybody would disagree that the world has been drifting farther and farther away from the Lord. I think you, you look at the, the years that go by, and even just in my lifetime, I, I, man, the world just seems to be drifting farther and farther away from where we're at. Now, now, we'd like to think that, no, the church has stood firm, and the church has actually been pulling the world back to holiness and righteousness, because isn't that our job, right? Seek and save the lost and pull people back, but, but the world seems to continue, not to say we're not having victories, but the, the world seems to get farther away. But here's what I think has actually been happening. I think the world has been drifting away. But I think the church has been drifting with it. And I think that there are things that Christians tolerate today and find acceptable that the Christians back here would have thrown up at. So we're here. 
And, 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 and yeah, there's still a difference. And, and, and many people who are Christians today say, well, yeah, I'm still a little bit better than the world. But the church is over here. And the church has drifted. Now, let me illustrate to you what I think the biggest danger is. Because here's what I think is happening now. I think the world is starting to move into the church. And now we have this going on. Because now there are things of the world that are glorified inside the church. There are things going on in the world that, that not only do Christians find acceptable, they praise. And so here, my friends, if I can visually demonstrate it for you, is the biggest danger that I see facing the church today. Is there's aspects of the world and it is not clear anymore of what is of God and what isn't. And now it's being found acceptable inside the church. And, and, and although that's disturbing, it's disturbing to me. I hope it's disturbing to you. It's not a new thing. What, why has this been going on? What, what is going on at play? What, what, what is going on? Is there any examples of this kind of thing happening in the Bible? And I would say, yes, there's lots of examples of what started out holy has drifted to unholy. What has started out pure has been contaminated. All that stuff. And I'd like to explore some of that with you. If you got your Bible, please turn to Mark chapter 11. And then also, if you could find John chapter 2 at the same time, that would be fantastic. And if your Bible has one of those little ribbon bookmark things in it, why don't you pull that in to John 2 or Mark 11, because over the next few weeks, we are going to be examining these two places in Scripture quite thoroughly. So we're going to be coming back to them, and so just keeping them you know, ready, that would be fantastic. I there's something very significant that I would like to start talking about today, and we're going to continue for several weeks, and I'll explain more as we get a little bit deeper into this talk today. But in Mark chapter 11, you're going to find that you're going to catch up with Jesus during the last week of his life. Okay, this is just a few days before he's going to be nailed to a cross. The time is ticking. The, the sands of the hourglass are slowly almost to the end, and Jesus knows it. And something's going to happen in Mark chapter 11 that's going to seal Jesus' fate. What we read together is what makes the, the leaders of the day really that now we're going to kill him. Now he's gone too far. So in Mark chapter 11, let's read it together. Here's what's going on. Jesus, on reaching Jerusalem, he entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and, it, and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for the, all nations, but you have made it what? A den of of robbers. This was such a significant event that all four writers of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, chose to include it in their writings. That, that's how significant this was. He cleared the temple. Now John's account is a little bit different. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they put the cleansing of the temple during the last week of Jesus' life. But if you read John's Gospel, 
he puts it at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Um, so Jesus turns water into wine. It was his first miracle. And then he cleanses the temple. And it's caused people to say, whoa, did he do this twice? Is, is John recording the same event, but he doesn't put everything in chronological order? I don't know if we'll ever be able to say for sure why John puts it at the beginning and others put it at the end. I'm comfortable with Jesus doing this twice. Why wouldn't he? But either whether he did it twice or just once, the circumstances around the cleansing of the temple are exactly the same. Let's read what John said about it. Look over at John chapter 2, starting in verse um, 13. It says, When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. He had made a whip out of cords, and he drove all the people from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So whether Jesus did this once or twice, I don't know if we could ever say definitively for sure. I'm sure I'm comfortable with him doing it twice. Why not? Once at the beginning and once at the end of his ministry. But the circumstances are exactly the same. He, he, there was something going on in the temple area that was a far cry from God's original vision. If you were to go back, you don't have to, it'll be on the screens, but in Mark chapter 11, verse 18, the very next verse of what we read, it was, says this, the chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this, and they began looking for a way to kill him. This was like the final straw, like, you've done it now, we're going to take care of you. I mean, that, that was the final straw. And so Jesus, he sees what's going on in the temple, and it infuriated him. And it makes us ask the question, did, did this just happen overnight? I mean, I mean, it used to be all about what God wanted. It used to be something else. Did, did the priest just wake up one day and say, let's turn this whole thing into something else? No, that's not what happened at all. What happened? It drifted. It, it started out good. And then it started to drift. And over time, it drifted farther and farther and farther away from God's original vision. And friends, I'm telling you, I don't know if it's just human nature or what, but it almost feels like at times, would you agree, that there's something inside me that makes me want to drift. That if I'm not focused, if my fire is not burning hot, I am drifting away from what God called me to. This is what's happening to the children of God. This is the danger that's facing the church today. So what exactly was going on in the temple that got Jesus so upset? And I want to spend a few minutes kind of picking this apart because understanding what Jesus did on this day and all that took place has massive parallels for the church today. And I hope that you'll see that by the time we're done. And I hope you really see it by the time we finish this series that we're starting today. We need to understand this is such a significant thing that happened in Jesus' ministry. It tells us something significant about our very lives. So what was it that got Jesus so upset? Well, first let me tell you about the temple. 
The temple was the very center of the Jewish world in its day. Its history is deeply rooted in the Old Testament, and, um, and it goes all the way back to the time of Moses when he led the Israelites out of slavery. Do you remember our study through the story? He led them out of, the, out of slavery, and now they're in the wilderness. They're trying to get to the promised land, and God lays out all the guide for righteousness and holiness and what it looks like to be his children. And a part of that was a creation of a house for God. Now, in those early days, it was a tent that was portable, and they could move it around. Do you remember what that tent was called? The tabernacle. Very good. You know more than the first two services. You know, I asked that last night. I said, what was that tent called? It was like, uh, uh. And, I, and I last service said, what's it called? And I heard a whisper, tabernacle. But you guys are like, tabernacle, so I'm proud of you. Very good. Um, you're obviously more holy than the rest of the church. So anyway, no, I'm, I'm kidding. I'm joking, of course. But it was called the tabernacle, and, 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 and it was a portable tent. Now, King David comes along years later. He says, God, I'm building you a permanent temple. And, and, and God said, no, you're not. you got blood on your hands. But I'm going to let your son Solomon do it. So Solomon builds this grand temple to God, and it was going to be the very dwelling. I mean, it was something. Read the Old Testament description of Solomon's temple, and it'd be like, holy cow. I don't even think we could build something like that today. That temple would be destroyed. It didn't last. They would build a second temple years and years later. Not as grand as the first one, but it was still pretty nice. And, um, and this temple is, is known as the second temple. If you read anything in archaeology, they'll call it the second temple period, things like that. Uh, this is the temple that uh, Herod renovated um, um, during, during his life. So sometimes the second temple is called Herod's temple. But this is the temple area that Jesus walked up into in Mark chapter 11. I mean... This temple would have looked something like this. I've got a, an artist rendition of what this area would have looked like. Now, right in the middle of this area, you see the tallest building is the one the artist has a little bit yellow on the top. This is what was called the most holy place or the holy of holies. This is the area that the high priest would go into once a year and offer sacrifices, burn incense for the atonement of God's people. And it was all of that steeply rooted in Old Testament stuff that you can go back and read. This outer area um, outside of that building was where the priest did their um, normal activities. Um, the, this is where people would bring their sacrifices for their sins. This is where prayers were prayed. This is where worship happened. This is all daily normal activities for a Jewish person back in this time period. The temple if you go back and read the Old Testament, you learn that the temple was designed to be the very dwelling place of God. It was supposed to be a visual reminder that God was going to be their God and that these people were going to be his children. This area was a place of worship of the most holy God. This temple is where people's sins were forgiven. This temple is where people would come and they would pray these prayers to a holy God. I mean, this is where loyalty and devotion was on display for the rest of the world to see. People would come and they would bring their offerings to the temple and they would make the sacrifices and all of those things. The Bible has very specific purpose and instructions for God's temple and it was not to be deviated from under any circumstances. Now, I could spend an hour talking about what all those rules were. I don't really want to do that. That's not pertinent to what we're talking about today. 
But please trust me when I tell you this, that everything that God laid out for people to do had a very specific purpose and was supposed to be carried out with all sincerity and all love and all devotion to a holy God who loved his children and who would die for them. That's what this place right here represented, or at least that's what it was supposed to. And this whole system uh, we call it today the sacrificial system of the shedding of blood had one purpose and that was to bring in the Messiah, Jesus. And when the Messiah, Jesus, came to the temple, he did not like what he saw. And what did Jesus see? What was it that got him so angry? Well, it was Passover time. We know that is clear. So that would mean that the temple area would be especially busy. It was a busy place already. But at Passover time, some would come from all the surrounding areas for their annual visit to Jerusalem where they would make their annual sacrifice. They would give their annual offering. So this was a much busier place than normal. And there were two activities that got Jesus so riled up. And the first one had to do with the buying and the selling of animals. At some point, the priest started offering the animal sacrifices for people right in the temple courts. Now this is this area here, if you can read it, it says the Gentile courtyard. This is where that would take place outside. Um, anybody could come up into that area. It was a place where you could have Jewish people talking about their holy God and others from around the world would go, really, you serve a God like that? It could have been a place for evangelism and all of those things. But when Jesus walked up there, it was a marketplace. And at some point in time, the priest had the idea, let's offer the sacrifices so nobody has to bring them on their own. And you know what? Let's do this as a convenience because people are traveling from a long way and let's just make it convenient. They can get it right here. And, and you know, they would probably charge a modest fee for this service and it probably started out as something very sincere. But just like very sincere things sometimes do, they begin to drift, especially when there's money involved. And so the buying and selling and trading of sacrificial animals started to become a lucrative business for the priest who themselves, I think is very clear through Jesus' ministry, many of them had drifted far off of God's design too. They were making a lot of money. And that infuriated the Lord. And, and what else would infuriate him about that whole thing? This was supposed to be a place of prayer and worship and devotion to God. But I'm telling you, it probably looked and smelled more like a cattle auction when Jesus went up there. The whole visual of it is wrong. It doesn't fit what God designed this place to be. And that really got Jesus riled up. The second activity that got Jesus riled up had to do with these money changers. Not only were the priests making a little extra money from the buying and selling of, of uh, these animals, which the Lord never told them to do, by the way, they had also established a pretty lucrative business exchanging foreign money for Jewish currency. This was another service that they were providing right there in the temple courts. People would have to pay their temple offerings or sometimes referred to as a temple tax in a currency that the priest would accept. And so many of them brought foreign currency to the temple area so they could exchange this money. Much like if you were to travel to another country today, you would exchange your money for, for the currency of the land. There's usually a little fee involved with that. So that's what they were doing. But it was Passover time, which means a lot more people, right? 
So let's up our fees a little bit. Let's make a little bit more money for ourselves. And Jesus saw this going on. He was mad about it. And you know, the same thing happens today. Do you ever travel during the holidays and have to pay a little bit more for gas? Why is that? Why do I got to pay more for gas on Labor Day than any other day? Because more people travel, there's going to be more cars, more people need gas, and the people who sell gas, I'm using very generic terms, people who sell gas said, we can make a little bit more money if we charge a little bit more, same thing happens, this is what's happening, and it infuriated Jesus. Why are you making money? Why are you padding your pockets in the name of the Lord? And so Jesus walks up in here, he makes a whip. And he goes, Indiana Jones on everybody in the temple courts, okay? And he chases them all out of there. And, and, and I think you can get the visual pretty well. We have imaginations. We can visualize what this looks like here in this temple courts. Jesus is swinging the whip everywhere. He's turning over tables. You can hear the money going cha-ching, cha-ching, cha-ching across the ground. You've got people running out with their cages with doves on them. And there's animals running around and critters. And, and, and I can imagine as Jesus ran everybody out of there, there was a pretty good crowd that probably assembled with some distance between Jesus and them. I would imagine there was a hush that kind of came over the crowd, like what in the world is going on? And I can imagine Jesus was standing there breathing pretty hard from swinging this whip around. I would be after 10 seconds. And he looks at them all. And he's like, how dare you? How dare you? My father's house is to be a house of prayer, but you, you have turned it into a den of robbers. How dare you? You've turned it into something else. How dare you? After Jesus did this, it's that's when his disciples remembered in Mark chapter 11, verse 17, they remembered that it was written my house will be called a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of robbers. And then he says, zeal for my house will consume me. Zeal for my house will consume him. It, was, uh, it had to have been a tremendous thing to behold. And I don't know about you, but I get the impression that Jesus is very passionate about his house. He's passionate about what goes on there. He's passionate about what's practiced there. He's passionate about its purpose. He's very passionate about his, how his children behave. So that's why in John chapter 2, I gave you the wrong reference before, but it's in John chapter 2, verse 17. He says, zeal for his house will consume me. But hopefully you know this, that temple, it's gone. That temple would be destroyed in 70 AD, not long after Jesus. In fact, Jesus even predicted it. Do you remember? He said to his disciples, see these stones? One day they're going to all be on top of themselves. And they're like, how can that be? He says, you tear down this house and, and I'll rebuild it in three days. Of course, he was talking about himself. Nobody knew that. So this second temple would be destroyed in 70 A.D. It's no longer around, but that doesn't mean that God's temple still doesn't exist. The physical temple is gone, but God's temple still exists. And the Bible tells us 
that Christians today are themselves the very temple of God. God's dwelling is now in us. It says so right in 1 Corinthians 3.16. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? The physical temple is gone, but the Lord's temple is still very much alive. And it's in us. And he is still passionate about it. Jesus changed everything. Jesus cleared the temple in more ways than one when he died on the cross and he rose to life. Paul said this about it in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. He said, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers. He's talking to the church. He's not talking to just a random group of people. He's talking to the church. He's talking to us. You have got Christ in your heart. So guess what? You are no longer foreigners, strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone of this temple. In other words, he is the, it's all about him. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So when his disciples remembered that Jesus would have zeal for his house, that zeal is still present Today, Jesus is very passionate about his house, his temple, everything it stood for, everything it represented. He's still passionate about his house today. That zeal has not wavered at all. We, ourselves, are the temple that the Lord is still so passionate and zealous for today. We are that. And so we as the church which is all of us together combined make up the church, we the church, have a tremendous responsibility to stay true to God's purpose for his dwelling, his house, in our own bodies and in our gatherings and in our worship and in our prayers and in our devotion to his word and in our love for one another and in our mission to seek and save the lost. He's still passionate about it today. And so should we. You know, the, the temple that Jesus cleared, it didn't just become a market one day. No, it drifted over time to something that was so far off of God's vision. And the church today is in the same danger of drifting off of God's purpose. And I personally are, is seeing it more and more all the time. You know, the apostles even warned us that God's dwelling place inside of each of us is prone to drifting. And there are dangers in drifting and all of those things. Um, Paul warned the church in 1 Corinthians 6, 18. He said this, listen church, you've got to flee from sexual immorality. Well, why? I mean, why do we need to flee from that? What's the big deal there? Because it's a part of drifting. Paul will say, all other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against his own body. Well, what's the big deal with that? He says in the very next verse, don't you know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? Here, here's the crux of the matter. 
Your body is where God dwells. It's the temple. And there's things you do in the temple, and there's things you don't do in the temple. And he says, your bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. So this is just one of many examples, but I'll just use it. So when the church, when, when Christians, when we don't stand up for the purity that's so clearly preached in the Bible, and when we don't resist the, the immorality that we see so much a part of this worldly system, and when we practice that, our very selves, we dishonor God with our very bodies, and we put shame on God's temple, and, 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 and we drift towards glorifying immorality. And one day, we wake up, and this temple that houses the Holy Spirit doesn't look anything like God's intention for it. And we're prone to drift. And so was the church back in this day, and so is the church today. Let me give you one more passage. This is 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14. Paul, again, speaks about the dangers of drifting. He says, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. Let me illustrate this passage with my two examples. He says, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what can fellowship and light have with darkness? What harmony can there be? between Christ and Baal. What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Drifting is the result of when we no longer see or practice the difference between these two things. Let me say that again. Drifting is the result when we no longer see or practice any difference between these two competing systems. And friends, I want you to know today that God does not want you to drift. And God does not want this church to drift. And as God is my witness, this church will not. So we are starting a brand new series today called Drifting. And I just finished my introduction, so now we'll start the sermon. So no, I'm, I'm kidding. We are starting a brand new series today called Drifting. And for the next few weeks, we are going to be exploring the real dangers that exist out there for the church today. We're going to look at some examples. Some of those are going to sting a little, but that's okay because anything that stings 
can be relieved with God's forgiveness and grace. But we're going to talk about drifting. We're going to talk about the dangers that are associated with, with drifting. We're going to talk about how this competing system of the church and the world, how the world wants you to pull up anchor from what is solid and float with them. But we're going to talk about how we're not going to do that. We're going to talk about identifying these dangers in the world today and how we can stand up and resist them. There's, there's a lot of things we're going to talk about, and I, I really believe that perhaps this might be the most significant few weeks in our year this year that we're going to talk about the church. Because the most dangerous thing facing Christians today is the fact that it's not clear anymore what the difference is. And that's scary. That's scary.